Well, it is now my job to discuss in my dinky little corner of the internet one of the most well-thought-of, popularized, and considered one of the best films of all time, uh, films. Uh, yeah, a little nervous, a little nervous. I, I, before we move into anything further, a lot of research was done for this film, and one of the things I find most interesting is I actually recognized uh, the campaign in display. Now, you might be like, well, of course you did, you're looking into this. Well, no, my point is I recognized it before they actually went in further. They even mentioned Sibley, uh, Brigadier General Sibley, in the middle of it. The New Mexico campaign, you can look it up. Uh, this kind of covers that period of time. There's some things that are anachronistic, and to my knowledge, there is no Stanton Bridge. But still, you can kind of see where this is coming from. Uh, 1862, by the way. Fascinating time. This movie... Ah, oh my goodness. This I've seen this movie several times. And I will admit it has a few pacing issues. Uh, don't mistake me. I'm not trying to say that it's slow, as I tried to make clear the last two times I talked about this. Slow doesn't bother me. Taking your time doesn't bother me. A slow boil doesn't bother me. Pacing issues is when the pacing doesn't work, regardless of how fast or slow it is. And I feel like there are several sections which kind of lurched a little bit, especially towards the end of Act 2. This is despite the fact that I actually enjoy some of the scenes that don't really quite fit in with the rest of the narrative. I also want to give huge props to Eli Wallach for being awesome, <laughs> because he really does steal the show, this movie, which is funny, considering how despicable of a character he's playing. He still manages it, so that's definitely credit to a good actor there. I also, of course, want to give credit to Lee Van Cleef for once again being awesome. I do want to mention a few behind-the-scenes stuff. This is what we like to call as a troubled production for one of the most... Well, let me rewind a second. I've noticed a weird tendency for some of the really, really, really well-thought-of films to have some really messed-up stuff going on behind the scenes. I've actually already talked about this with Star Wars, A New Hope. I've talked about this with The Godfather, Part 1. And I am now talking about this here, and I have mentioned this before with regards to 2001 A Space Odyssey as well, uh, which may end up on this year's bracket at the moment, but I don't actually know if that's true or not, because at the moment the voting hasn't been done yet, but I'm getting off-topic. In this case, uh, Mr. Leone, while well, he certainly is talented with the camera, doesn't seem to understand safety regulations. Maybe it's different in Italy, I don't know. But some of the stuff that was allowed on his sets um, would probably get the man severely sued in the modern era. Uh, there's obviously the horse incident with the, you know, the nose. Uh, how about the acid that he ended up drinking? Now, thankfully, he managed to spit it out quickly, but I mean... The train's the really mean one. If you actually watch carefully during the train scene, you can see the chunks of the train. I forget what it's called, but there's an extra bit of the train that sits down further than the rest of it, which the crew hadn't accommodated for. Now, thankfully, Eli had the presence of mind to keep his head down and stay down, because if he hadn't, he might have quite literally died. This is ignoring the bridge incident, where the bridge was accidentally destroyed early, and that caused its own incident, although I've heard several anecdotes which disagree with each other on that one, so all I can say with certainty is that the bridge incident caused a problem. Oh, and, uh, of course, I have to also point out the fact that our good friend Clint Eastwood almost died on that one, too. You can literally see it. You don't even have to slow it down. If you just watch the bit, there's this bit where he, you know, Clint Eastwood's like this, and you just hear this thunk as a giant rock just collides with the sandbag, like, maybe three feet to his right. Yeah, that would have probably killed him. 
if he was lucky and giving the rate that because that was a real explosion they actually set off an actual explosion so that uh that would have caused some issues and yet we get this film out of it so i'm going to do my best to dive into this sucker the first shot we get is him playing with the camera again he starts off with what is technically a long shot and then immediately shifts into a short shot oh my god yawn attack short shot without any editing tricks he just has someone literally like like this just kind of off camera and then he kind of comes on camera so we can have that and we have this whole lead up and actually before i talk about the next thing i just want to say eli wallach shows up and it's like the ugly and my first thought was he's the ugly i get it but i mean I remember when I first saw this as a kid, I was like, why is he the ugly one? Uh, this is also, it's probably worth noting, this is Tuco's story. Angel Eyes and Blondie kind of weave in and out of the story, and certainly both of them are very relevant to its overall arc, and of course are a good parallel for the overall story being told, which I'll get into my opinion on later. But this is Tuco's story. This is the path of one man through what is effectively hell, as he bungles his way through it. It's worth noting that he is not a victim in any sense of the word. Although bad things happen to him, they are almost universally because of his own actions. Oh, I'm sorry, I meant to talk about that first, sorry. Before we go further into the Tuco story thing, can I just say, it always amuses me when we see Princess Bride effect, uh, in effect. Now, I, I don't really use that phrase all that often in my show, even though it comes up constantly when it comes to fiction. Princess Bride Effect, for those of you not aware, is when something comes out and people are like, Meh, and it's a flop, either financially, critically, or both. And then time passes, and then people look at it and like, well, this is really good. And it becomes very successful, either financially, critically, or both. This film is yet another example of that. It hits cinema, cinema all the time. I actually have something up on my second monitor here I'd like to share with you really quick. A couple of quotes from it. Let's see. <clears throat> this film, this is from the New York Times, uh, said must be the most expensive, pious, and repellent movie in the history of its peculiar genre. Someone from the Los Angeles Times says, and I quote, The temptation is hereby proved irresistible to call the good, the bad, and the ugly, now playing citywide, the bad, the dull, and the interminable, only because it is. Now, I actually was going to read up on more of these, but I, I found quite a few. Basically, the film was kind of panned when it came out, critically, but however, it managed to be wildly successful financially, which is actually kind of a rarity. But what I find funny about this is if you go and try to look up, right now, if you just go to Google or whatever, and you try to look up, you know, film analysis or critics thoughts on this if you even just go to just rotten tomatoes of all things this film last i checked sits at 97 percent on rotten tomatoes <sighs> however <clears throat> roger ebert who has since walked this back by the way said uh, he described this as a four-star movie but only gave it three stars because it was a spaghetti western and thereby could not be art <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to share that. As soon as I saw that, I was just like, oh my god, you're kidding me. Anyways, <clears throat> moving on. Tuco's story. 
I'm going to come back to that, actually. I know that sounds strange, but I, I have a narrative point I want to make, and I want to build up to it, as is per my idiom. So the next thing I want to talk about is 10 minutes and 35 seconds. Now, that counts the opening credits. It's worth noting. But for 10 minutes and 35 seconds, not a single line of dialogue is said. Not one. How many movies are brave enough to attempt something like that? Not counting the recent, you know, Stay Quiet or Monsters Will Eat You movie that I can't think of the name of. I just point that out because it's not like there's no story happening. It's not like nothing is occurring. Quite a bit is exposited upon without a single line of dialogue. I think this is ultimately why this film does sit out so well in my memory. Not because of the, the Mexican standoff, which everyone talks about, and I will be doing so as well. Not because of the obvious you know, parallel, or not parallel, but the, the war is bad message, to put it simply. But because of the fact that this film does a lot of showing instead of telling. And I think that is good. I, I, that's the kind of reasoning and line of thought that I tend to adhere, to adhere to in general when it comes to directing. So I'm absolutely with that. So Angel Eyes shows up. We have a lot of tension in his confrontation with, I don't even remember his name. And, of course, Lee Van Cleef shows his acting chops by effortlessly playing someone who is just horrible. A, a classic Type 4 villain. Just just really, really horrible. Uh, un, unrepentantly, unforgivably, unredeemably bad. The bad of the trio. And, of course, there's a lot of build-up to the, to the scene, but what I find most amusing is it's clear he was just kind of trying to fish for whatever he could get. Because he always had the gun under the table, just ready to go. And the other guy tried several things to try and deal with it, tried to talk him out, tried to bribe him out, tried to shoot him out, none of that worked. Bang. He didn't shoot until he was done, effectively. And it's also strange to note that he only killed the guy's son because the son came at him with a gun. I, it's just interesting because... It shows him as the guy who's completely on top of things, which is going to be a pretty common trend throughout the course of this film. There's always one person who's fairly competent of these, and for two of them, it's been Lee Van Cleef. So, he's the bad. <laughs> Type 4 villain, horrible. I didn't really talk about the fact that Eli Wallach is the ugly. Uh, that is to say, Tuco is the ugly. Because that's something I'll be discussing at length as we go through it. But I think the simplest way to explain it is, well, next we see his interactions with Blondie. Quick side note, near as I can tell, every source I've read on this indicates that rather than being called Blondie, he should have been called Whitey. Just amusing historical anecdote there. <clears throat> Blondie goes ahead. First of all, he offers a duel before shooting them. Again, because, because that's what happens in these movies. I've already talked about that. And the, <laughs> they try to have probably the only funny scene in the entire film is when Tuco says, no, when, when anyone crosses me, things bad things happen. Immediately cut to him being in the noose again. Uh, but what's interesting about this is he goes out, Tuco and Blondie head out, and Blondie's like, you know what? No, I, I think I'm just going to chill here. Uh, you, you get off. It's about 70 miles to the nearest town. You're in the middle of the desert. Uh, you're, you're tied up. And you have no water, food, or supplies, or a horse, or a mule. Bye. He's the good. But that's the film's point, isn't it? That even the best that this circumstance can produce is someone who is still bad. So it's all relative. 
Now, I'm actually very against the very concept of moral relativism, but that is clearly the film's point, that Blondie is probably someone who would be good in a better world. He is not in a better world, so this is as good as good gets. This is actually shown in the finale, too. He could have just let, he, he could have just shot uh, Tuco, just done, before he even does the whole dig your own grave, or, you know, dig up the gold thing. He could have just went ahead and left him hanging from the tree, but instead he actually shoots him free. He didn't have to do any of that. That's as good as good gets. Remember that, because I want to bring that point up later. So, we see in the next scene part of the reason why we can call him the ugly. Because of the way he deals with the shopkeep. He barges into the poor shopkeep, and this guy's just, oh, oh, he just feels put upon, right? Actually, fun anecdote really quick. Um, Eli Wallach is not actually into guns, or he wasn't at the time, so he doesn't know guns. So when he, his direction for the scene when he's fiddling with all the revolvers was just do whatever. So he just decided to make up random things to do, and, and the actor he was acting across was like, what's he doing? Is this on, should I stay on in character? Should I? Okay, the camera's still rolling, all right, I'm just... You can kind of see him, like, look around, like, looking for direction a couple times. It's very funny. Anyways. So he barges in. He's very rude to him. Barks orders at him. Takes his gun. Takes his liquor. Gives the liquor back. And steals from him. That's the ugly. Because while all three of the main characters are evil to some extent or another, his particular brand of evil is to go back to the concept of Ramon back in the first film, coarse. He is rough, gritty, unpleasant, rude, boorish. We've got all sorts of words to describe this type of character. That's the ugly here. And it becomes very clear as we go throughout the scenes why he is this way. So, then Tuco is basically just interested in revenge and nothing else. And this leads to several scenes of him going after Blondie. Now, this is interesting in its own right, because it kind of shows how much he's, he doesn't even care about anything else. Just, no, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill him. So he tries to, he, he goes to get his friends to die for him, to give him an advantage, because, ugly, we've talked about this. And then he goes ahead and effectively forces Blondie to allow another man to die, Shorty, in this case, basically just so he can get his revenge on him. And then he forces him to go through what might be one of the most horrible things you could do to a person in a circumstance. Just to walk through the desert with no rest, no food, no water, and being taunted about it the entire time. Yeah, no, Tuco got off easy in the ending, I'm just saying. That is a messed up sequence. Side note, near as I can tell, I was watching some kind of extended edition. I rent these on Amazon, which is how I, I watch most of the movies I watch for the regards to these ruminations. Because it's the quickest and easiest way to get them to me. Um, some of these I own, but not this one. I don't, I, well, that's actually not true. I do have a box set, but that's VHS. And I don't have a TV anymore, but bang, 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 bang. This, uh, this it, I feel like there were some deleted scenes that were added back in. Because there were several scenes I didn't remember at all, including the one where he specifically taunts him with the wash water that he's using for his feet. Just, just wanted to comment on that really quick. So... He really drags out how long he's dealing with Blondie. And in fact, it gets to a point where he finally decides, okay, I'm done torturing you. I'm going to go ahead and kill you. And it's going to be awesome, and you're going to die. And is that a carriage? 
And he takes so damn long in dragging this out that he gets interrupted. In the course of this, he decides to go rob the dead. Ugly. And he finds our good, good friend who Angel Eyes has been seeking out this entire time. Now, this is actually funny. You notice I haven't really mentioned Angel Eyes. It's because he kind of shows up a few times, but he's just seeking out this this one gentleman. I can't remember his name. Sorry. It's Bill something. Uh, you know, the, the Confederate soldier, the one who buried the gold that was meant for the third regiment, I want to say, third cavalry, something like that, the third unit. And he, he, Angel Eyes has been seeking it out, Angel Eyes has been, but the point is, the movie has narratively been pushing that name into our mind. So then all of a sudden, we see a Confederate carriage, and the one person who's alive on it is that guy. I just feel like pointing all this out, because this script of this film, it does have a fairly large number of coincidences in it, and it would be unfair of me to not point that out. And that, of course, leads to Blondie coming over and finding out the truth of exactly where that, you know, the one correct grave is. And now Tuco now has to desperately keep Blondie alive, which leads to Tuco rushing off to a Confederate camp where the Confederates laugh and tell them to piss off. Note that they are currently disguised as Confederate soldiers. So functionally, the Confederate army just told their own to, to go piss off. Before you think I'm taking any kind of side, or even the movie is taking any kind of side, that's not the point. The point, and I'm just going to go ahead and drop this now, just to head off any comments in the comments section, is that both sides of the war were pretty awful. Remember, even the good in a situation like this is still pretty bad. And that leads me to a point. <clears throat> we see early in the thing, and I'm just going to pull this up here, as I wrote down each incident. So first we see the cavalry using Maria. I don't even know how best to, to put that without getting the, the vomit out of my mouth, so we're just going to move on from there. Um, then we have the rich, well-dressed gentleman insisting that they have no will to fight. It's ridiculous and pathetic how they just can't seem to stand up against the North. Meanwhile, there, there are shots, repeated and frequent shots of the injured or the dilapidated or the dying we see a camp of wounded, this is part of the Angel Eyes thing earlier, who are literally being fed by the cobs of corn. And I don't know if I'm saying that right, so let me make this clear. So you got corn, right? And you take all the actual corn seeds on it, what the actual edible part is, what you're left with is the cob in the middle. That's their food. The man is literally tossing those into a, a giant uh, ladle of, of a hot water to make some kind of pseudo-soup. Then, uh, uh, the, the incident I just mentioned with the Confederates telling, telling them to piss off and just laughing at them, literally laughing at them. You want an infirmary? <laughs> this then leads to them going to the mission, where they will take any in, regardless of the color of the uniform they're wearing. This is actually probably one of the better chunks of the entire film, in my opinion. Obviously, it shows how despicable... Tuco is, how desperate he is, it shows how, well, it shows a little bit of why he is the way he is, because we see Pablo, his brother. Now, Pablo is very uh, judgmental, very condescending, uh, very unapproachable. I don't blame him, but I find myself wondering if Tuco would have been able to be more positive towards him if he had been more embraced. Not that I'm blaming Pablo. Tuco's a horrible person. 
but he has some interesting points. One of the things that I've talked about many times recently is the... I've seen many, many times how some people seem to think that if you add more depth or personality or characterization or motivation to a villain, that they somehow become less villainous, that they become you know, less evil, less horrible. I've never agreed with that. It just makes them more complex. It adds more depth to them. And that is, I feel, what this scene does to Tuco, and that's one of the reasons why I like it so much. We get an insight into the man, excuse me, <clears throat> the boy, who had no real choice in life but to become a priest or a bandit. And he became a bandit. And there is a scene, it's probably the only scene in the entire film when he seems to legitimately be emotionally devastated by something. It's when he finds out that his mother and father are dead. Mother long dead, father only recently. And you could see it gets to him. And you get the, there's implication, there's a lot of showing, not telling, of what he went through, of how this meant for him, of why he went into this life. But I do have one question, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. At what point do you think Tuco stopped caring about other people? Because somewhere along there, somewhere in that journey, he just stopped caring about others. And I don't blame him, if you understand my meaning. So, <clears throat> we enter Act 2. This is actually the scene I remember most from the film, by memory. Uh, not, no, not the Mexican standoff. Mostly because of the fact that it was one of the first scenes of the film I ever saw. I'll get into why in just a second. So, hey, we're Confederates! Dust. Dust. Oh, crap. And they're brought in amongst hundreds of other prisoners. Fun fact, this film employed a lot of the actual Spanish military in order to fill out its extra ranks. So there's a whole lot of legitimate Spanish soldiers in the background of a lot of scenes, including most of the actual war scenes. So, then Angel Eyes finally resurfaces. And now we see... Some interesting things. This is, this is going to sound strange, but this is the moment at which the story really started to shine for me. Angel Eyes just kind of is in the, is in the Union camp, and he's just working for the Union. In fact, he's actually got some rank, and most of his gang is there, too. And he's doing fine. In fact, he's doing well. He is profiting out of this whole situation. Because remember, he is the bad. Not not like he's a bad person. All three of them are bad people. No. Of the three of who are all evil, he is the worst. And he is the one who is able to so, so seamlessly slide into the American Civil War. To war in general. Let's, let's make it clear. That is the point, obviously. And profit from it. And this, I feel, really be, brings the, the, the core underlying theme more to the surface. The idea that the good, the bad, and the ugly doesn't apply necessarily just to these three people, but to the types of people who exist in war. You have the good, who are forced to do horrible or unpleasant things to survive. You have the bad, who, let's be honest, are probably one of the reasons why the war is so horrible to begin with. And then you have the ugly, who are just doing what they can to survive in the middle and are very unpleasant in the way they go about doing it. And we see this. We actually see this in virtually every single soldier we interact with who has some degree of lines or another. Now, before I discuss this point in more full detail, I want to say one quick thing. There's a bit where they start playing some music. The song is uh, 
actually I wrote it down here, stay, I can't read my own handwriting, something of a soldier, stay of a soldier, I believe is what that says, and which adds some irony to what's happening, they play this lovely beatific music, so they can cover the fact that they're beating the crap out of someone in there, and apparently this is a regular occurrence, the good would be the captain, the guy, or actually I think it's a, colonel or something like that. But anyways, the guy who has gang gangrene, the guy who's dying. The guy who doesn't want them to misuse or abuse the troops. And you can kind of see through his eyes how unacceptable this is and how powerless he is to actually do anything about it. I'm not going to cover the bad and the ugly here because, frankly, I think that's fairly self-evident. So they just take him off and they're beating the crap out of him. You ever heard of Final Fantasy VI? Yes, I'm going to talk about a video game in this rumination on one of the best films of all time. If that bothers you, this is probably a good time to stop the video, because I'm going to do it again later. In Final Fantasy VI, there's this really wonderful, peaceful, beautific town music that plays. When I was younger, much younger, I was playing that game around my dad, and Lord Dad was like, Huh, that sounds like the song from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And my reaction was, Huh? And he's like, Oh, let me show you the scene, son. So he showed me the scene, and ever since to this day, and I'll actually reference this in the future whenever I do my FF6 uh, IDC, but I, ever ever since to this day, I have associated that the, that scene and that town music kind of together. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> the The narrative leaves the war for a second. They head out, you know, they get out. One of them gets out on, on the backs of the other, basically. The other one is dragged out by chains. You know, Eli Wallach nearly dies from the train situation. I already talked about that. He takes a bath, and then he shoots the armed bandit, the guy from the very beginning, the first, first shot of the film, as he's saying. He says, don't, when you're going to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Now, what I find funny about that is he made that exact same mistake with regards to Blondie. So you could say he's kind of learned his lesson. But I remember thinking, can a revolver still operate you know, waterlogged like that? I, I truly don't know. I'm not a gun expert. I just found that to be an amusing thought. <clears throat> Anyways. The narrative shifts away from them, and they've got this whole you know, standoff thing. It's, it's Blondie. And Tuco, together again, going up against Angel Eyes' gang. And then a shell goes off. Now, this is going to be a recurring point for the entire rest of the film. They can't escape the war. That's the point. Because, as I've said before, I feel like this narrative is really more about the war than anything else. Or simply, more accurately, war than anything else. It's easy to say war is bad, but this film goes way, way out of its way to show many, 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 many different me methods and ways in which war is bad, including the abandoned town they're fighting in and the fact that the, the fighting is still affecting their fighting under the hood, so to speak. And then they are literally dragged right into it with the battle for Stanton Bridge. Now, <laughs> I'm sorry, I... Actually, I'm not even gonna. I'm not gonna hide it. I actually teared up a bit during those scenes, because there's the there's the Union soldiers and they're all lined up and ready to go, getting ready for the day's slaughter. And the way they talk about it, and the way they present it, it's like clockwork. 
the idea is every day at such and such a time we start attacking each other. We charge and we attack, we charge and we attack. And then at a certain point we stop. We all kind of go back to our places because nobody won, of course. We, you know, gather the dead. We move on. And this just repeats over and over and over. And it's been repeating for days. And the captain, who is so drunk, he doesn't even have a name. I wrote down his name. Alcoholic Union Captain is his literal credit. And yet he, once again, has a lot of showing, not telling. Because what we see here is he is also a good. He is someone who hates what he is going through, who despises it with every fiber of his being, who knows what it would cost him if he were to personally go and do what he wants to do, and he is too coward. I don't want to say the word cowardly. He can't bring himself to do that. And he is also someone who really, obviously, legitimately cares about the lives of his people and hates the senseless slaughter. In several characters actually flat out state that's a man who's looking for a bullet in his gut and that is in fact exactly what he gets but he begs pleads with the medic give, give me a little more life please i'm expecting good news and when they finally blow the bridge which means his people can you know stop fighting here and get on with it it's the last thing he hears he dies seconds later he was just because, see, it's getting to me again. He was just holding on for that. For no other reason. Because that's as good as good gets in war. And that's the point. We see throughout the entirety of the narrative constant emphasis on how it grinds people down into worse versions of themselves. The bad will always be the bad, and the good will always be the good, and the ugly will always be the ugly. But they become much less pleasant, much coarser, much harsher, much more vicious, much more selfish, much more callous. Because they have to, because they are ground down into that by war. Now, obviously I'm not going to you know, dismiss the final bit of the film, which is the great, the, you know, the original Mexican standoff. And I do have several things to talk about there. <sighs> it starts at 43 minutes and 40 seconds, and it lasts several minutes. It's a very long scene. Now, I want to talk about two things really quick before we get into the scene itself. The first is the concept of the black. Now, when it comes to filming... Usually, when you're filming something, what the characters can see is not what the audience can see. That's just logical. If the camera's pointing this way, and the character's facing this way, then they can see this way. But what is done here, and this is done very deliberately, and I can name two examples that are most obvious of this, uh, is they've done a thing so that the characters can only see what is on camera. This comes up in the Mexican standoff because this is how... Angel Eyes is able to sneak up on them on a flat terrain with nowhere to hide. They would have seen him coming from literally hundreds of yards away, but no, no, he's, he's right there. Sure. The other one is, of course, the fact that they literally stumble into a Union uh, camp earlier in the film, right before the whole bri bridge thing I just mentioned. There are other examples of this. It's a deliberate narrative choice, which makes the film feel weird, if I'm being honest, but it is an interesting style. Which leads me to the second choice, editing. Now, uh, 
editing is the kind of thing... Oh God, there's, there's so much I could talk about with editing. But what it boils down to is usually editing is done to make things have a pace to them. In order to maintain a certain level of tempo and a certain beat and feel to the exact way you want a scene to go. That pace may not always be the same. It may accelerate, or it may slow down even. Just a little bit as you move through it. But what he does is he manages to... He uses editing to a very strange and yet very effective technique. Because he doesn't do it the typical way, which is what I was expecting to say. It's because I started counting the seconds in between each edit in the final Mexican standoff. It starts off being an average of eight seconds per chop, and then ends off being an average of three seconds per chop. However, it's always punctuated periodically by eight-second chops. So, to try and visualize this, imagine if you spend eight seconds, and then four seconds, and then four seconds, and then four seconds, and then another eight-second chop in the middle of that. And then, it goes, and then it goes down to three seconds, three seconds, three seconds, three seconds, and then there's another eight-second chop. It maintains a weird sort of rhythm. And if you pay attention, most of the eight-second chops are actually not on their faces, which gets across the idea of the fact that as their heartbeat is literally increasing and their tension is literally increasing, most of the attention that we are being spent on is on them. But of course, there's still the nice slow reaching for the gun kind of a moment, right? In addition to this excellent, in my opinion, usage of editing, there's also the fact that in the scene you can kind of see how it's going to unfold without a single line of dialogue. Obviously both characters are, both, all three characters are looking at each other constantly, but the, all three actors, well, that's not true. Two of the actors involved are very, I, I shouldn't say that. Clint Eastwood can certainly act with his face, but I mean, the poor man was hot and tired and He's chewing on this thing that he hates because he doesn't smoke, and he's, he's, he's kind of allergic to horses. So he's just having all kinds of problems. So I didn't see most of the subtlety that I know the man can act in in this film. But the other two, I could see a lot of the subtlety. As I pointed out last time, uh, Lee Van Cleef certainly knows how to act with his face. And funnily enough, so does Eli Wallach. So both of them, you could see them, if you pay attention, you could see them basically deciding on how this is going to go as they're discussing it. it no, no words are being expressed, but you could see the, okay, I can't go with him, he's not going to work with me, but Blondie, Blondie's more better, and Blondie, should we go after him? Yeah, okay, so I guess we'll go. And you could almost hear the dialogue that isn't being stated there. Which brings me to my final reason why I find this so fascinating. It's a kingmaker scenario. I told you I'd talk about video games one more time. I'm going to talk about a game called StarCraft. <laughs> Getting my pedigree in here, yeah. In StarCraft, the original, there was a UMS, which is a user-made... Uh, I don't remember what it stands for. It's, <laughs> it's a custom map for StarCraft. It was called Marine Wars, or something similar. And the way it worked was each of the players you know, started at a base, and they had like one bunker, right? And, and once that bunker's gone, you're dead. So obviously the goal is to be the last one standing. Here's the catch, though. You can't build any troops. You can't... You know, there's no designing or anything. It just, every so many seconds, I like guess it's like three seconds, a new Marine pops in your base. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, that sounds pretty dumb. But there's a surprising amount of tactics when it comes to a situation like that. Because the first person to attack will almost invariably be the loser. Because they're attacking at a disadvantage. The mere amount of time it takes for your troops to go to the other side's troops means 
They're, they have more troops by the time your troops get there. That also means your base is undefended from a third player. And so this kind of weird political off stance of, of interacting with other players would always tend to arise, either that or you'd get idiots who would just A-move the entire time, in order to try and make the thing. And it was, it was just weirdly fascinating to me. Now, this is a topic I've brought up a few more times. I've talked about it with regards to the Sith as well, over in Star Wars. The rule of two existing because the rule of three would lead to the situation I just mentioned with the Marine Wars. Now, I said the word Kingmaker earlier. I looked this up for this film. Apparently, that is the official term for this kind of narrative trope. It's the concept of where one person has the power to make the king, but it's not really going to work out because they're not going to be, get to be king. They don't get to choose it for themselves. Uh, this is, I, I forget the specific, it's named after some British gentleman uh, from several years ago, hence, hence the term. <clears throat> so in short, it's this kind of narrative slash tactical slash political counterbalance where any two must by needs unite against a third. But where and exactly how that lines up, well, that's just a, a, a huge dynamic there. And of course, in this case, honestly, this was kind of a foregone conclusion in my mind, because there's no way in hell that Tuco thinks he can take on both of them at once. He does try, it's worth noting, but only because, he, if you pay attention, he, he shoots at, he and Blondie both shoot at Angel Eyes together, taking Angel Eyes out before Angel Eyes can do anything. Then he's like, uh, he goes for a second shot, and he doesn't have a second shot, but the delay in how he did it, there was no way he was going to manage that. In short, Tuco could have never won that standoff. Angel Eyes knows that the real threat here, despite the fact that both all three men are very good gunslingers, Blondie's the bigger threat. Blondie's faster and far more accurate, as he shows many times in all three of these films. So he needs to focus on him, and he is, of course, the one he ends up focusing on in general. Blondie decides that he's going to go ahead and accept Tuco as a non-variable, as long as Tuco decides to go after Angel Eyes, because he knows Tuco only has one bullet. And he then predicts that Tuca will go after Angel Eyes and not himself. Now, all of this is still guesswork. And that's what makes these kind of situations so interesting and so deadly. If Tuco had shot Blondie, Blondie had shot Angel Eyes, and Angel Eyes had shot Tuco, which could have happened, by the way. He could have, that, that, they could easily have lined up that way. They'd all be dead. And that would be the end of it. It doesn't even have to line up specifically that way. If, for example, uh, Angel Eyes had actually been faster on the draw, and Tuco had decided to go after Blondie, then Tuco wouldn't have had a second shot, and Angel Eyes could have gone after Tuco. And you could see how this could have lined up in several different ways. The long and the short of it is, there's no way all three of them are getting out of this alive, and there's not even a guarantee that even one of them is getting out of alive. Although, statistically speaking, it's more likely that one's going to get out than zero, and two's going to get out more than one, which is actually what happens in the film. It's a fascinating little development. And I would be remiss if I did not point out that the, they're doing this in a gigantic cemetery that's been set up as a direct cause of the war, making sure that no matter what, you can't avoid it, even in the finale. This is an interestingly constructed movie, and despite its pacing issues, yeah, I'd, I'd probably say this is my favorite of the three. This is, this is a brilliant film. Uh, it's dark. It's horrible. I, I actually had a few times where I was just like, okay, 
uh, like if I was to parallel it to a video game, I'd say Grand Theft Auto 4. Yes, that's right. I'm bringing a third game into this one. Because in Grand Theft Auto 4, one of the big narrative points, spoiler alerts, is that bad is as good as good gets. And that's just life. And that's kind of the point. And that does hit pretty hard, I'm not going to lie to you. But it's worth noting that the, the strength of so many of the elements of the narrative, its themes, its characters, and the way it pushes its narrative forward, really helps to sell me on this film. And, of course, the construction of the camera work, as I said earlier. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this excellent, excellent film series. I will see you guys next time.